Good evening, historians. Welcome to another episode. We always like to talk about all parts of history, even the things that may not sound quite like it. And this evening's guest will give us a flavour of that. We are going to be talking about fierce chemistry and a little bit of Gary Moore with Harry Shapiro. Uh, this is the history of drugs law in the UK. And uh, I'm we're obviously in Ireland, but we kind of mirror what happens in the UK. So we'll have an interesting discussion, uh, certainly, about this. So welcome, uh, Harry, to the Historians. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, indeed. indeed. I probably It's probably one of the, the, the last type of shows that you'd get a, a, expect to get an invite on, something to do with, the, with, with, with history. But um, it's very much, you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with history, certainly, in, in the book. What brought you to do this? So this, you've, you know, your, your career, I mean, it's not necessarily you're, you're an author. You, you have, a, you have a, had a career in the field. Yeah, I mean, I started out working in the, the UK drugs field in London in 1979 uh, when I joined uh, a charity called the Institute for the Study of Drug Dependence, which is basically, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a rehab or a clinic or anything like that. It was really to do with providing drug information, policy advice, talking to journalists, it was that kind of organisation, really very much trying to uh, tackle the kind of ignorance and prejudice that there is around this subject and how people regard those, how society at large regards people who've got drug problems, you know. Um, so it was, it was very much about, about uh, communications, information, policy, and information from anybody who wanted it. We used to get thousands of letters from letters. <laughs> Remember those letters <laughs> um, from school kids doing school projects. We'd get we'd be get requests from journalists, politicians, academics. Yeah, you name it. People who just come out of rehab and were looking to write their life story. You know, so they'd come down to the library and we'd. We'd help them out. I think the important thing about that place, and it's something I've kind of stuck with through this career, because after uh, the Institute, the Study of Drug Dependence, uh, merged with another organisation and called, and I, I actually named it Drugscope, and that lasted until 2015. Same essential mission that the information needs to be topical, current, up to date. It needs to be based on evidence. So not some kind of ideology or people's moral views. And it also needed to be non-judgmental. So we weren't making judgments about people who use drugs. And it's quite funny because the, you work for a drugs charity and people think, oh, you must be either anti-drug or you must be pro-drug. And I always used to say, well, I'm quite happy sitting on the fence here. You know, the view up here is is actually not bad. And there was one occasion which I've often commented on. In the library, one day, we had a long table where people could sit and read articles and books and stuff. Literally, one day, we had the legalised cannabis campaign sitting at one end, looking at stuff, and the Metropolitan Police Drug Squad sitting at the other end, looking at stuff. Neither knew who they were. But the important point was that we dealt with them equally. You know, whatever they wanted, there's your stuff, there's your stuff. And it's it's kind of my, my approach, really, ever since, to take a kind of helicopter view on this subject. And that's pretty much what I try to bring to the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's interesting. That, I mean, it, it's a fairly recent phenomenon the you know the people judging the use of drugs obviously it's, it's mainly in the 20th century where things mm -hmm. changed i mean you could say there's the opium dens in san francisco in the 1870s and then the americans changed the law there but you had alistair crowley you know uh, writing his uh, you know prolific user of cocaine flying his airplane around uh, europe and uh, writing a, a book titled diary of a drug fiend and you mm -hmm. know this and that was all cool as cucumbers and um, things changed though oh yes i mean i think um 
Well, <laughs> I think Alistair Crowley was sort of generally guarded as some someone who was like out there, shall we? <laughs> Not necessarily representative of the population at large. But yes, I mean, I think in certainly in the UK, um, what you might call drug hysteria actually started during the First World War, when there were the the tabloid press. God bless its heart, which hasn't really changed an awful lot, uh, started reporting that uh, soldiers coming back off leave into the West End of London were being sold cocaine by prostitutes. That, that, was, that was the thing. Um, and, and I think worse, the coke was coming from Germany, which kind of made it yeah, even yeah. worse. Like, even America, America's the company. Uh, yeah. How bad does it get? Um, and there was this thing called the Defence of the Realm Act. So the government brought in a whole raft of legislation um, about things you couldn't do because there was a war on. So you couldn't fly a kite in London parks because it might get in the way of sort of barrage balloons. Um, you couldn't shout out for a taxi in the street because people might think there was an air raid on and they would panic. So it's all sorts of weird stuff. But one of the things that they stopped was you couldn't possess cocaine or morphine unless you had a doctor's prescription. So that was kind of the beginning of it. By the time it got to the end of the war, um, the kind of feeling was, well, this is not a bad idea. We might, we, let, let's, let's stick with this. Because it, essentially the British drug scene at the time was a very small area of central London. It was confined pretty much to the streets around Soho. And it was like the, the entertainers, the, the sex workers, the musicians, the people in what we now call the nighttime economy, you know, the waiters and the bar staff and all of that, who were generally regarded, oh, and, and you know, thieves, footpads and, and <laughs> various twilight people who were, you know, completely disregarded by society, like the lowest of the low. So um, a good idea to try and kind of stop them having a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, interestingly, what I would call louche elements of the aristocracy, who were kind of, you know, they go for a walk on the wild side, down to the West End, into the nightclubs and the bars, and they kind of mix all these people. So in 1920, they, they cemented, this drug thing that came out of the First World War into the Dangerous Drugs Act. And you could say that Britain's, um, well, I say Britain's war against drugs started then, really. But I started thinking, and may well have spent too much time on this, I don't know. But I started thinking when I was writing this first bit, I thought, hang on a minute. Okay, so we've had a war against drugs. You go back into history, to the 16th, 17th and 18th century, 19th century, we actually had wars for drugs. <laughs> so we had we had the opium wars. We had, uh, I mean, all the colonial powers, all the sea powers were basically fighting for trade uh, and the commodities were very valuable. And those commodities was opium, was alcohol, was rum, was tea, was coffee, all of this stuff had a lot of political and economic clout. And you had sugar in there as well, because it was sugar that made tea and coffee popular, um, because you could sweeten the drinks. So, and we had the opium wars, we had all kinds of conflicts, Boston Tea Party. I mean, you could a whole array of wars fought to preserve what you could call the international drug trade in one way, shape or form. Until we get to the 20th century and then, um, you know, the kind of the consensus change and we're now looking at, 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 at trying to stop people from using drugs um, like opium, like heroin, like morphine, like cocaine, all the rest of it. Um, and so, yeah, but America brought in the Harrison Act in 1914. That was that was their starting point, if you like. And the British sort of followed suit in 1920. 
yeah. We were a little bit later to the party over here. I think, in fact, I think it was about 1977 when we missed the use of, of Drugs Act, where drugs actually became illegal. But there, there was no burgeoning scene in Ireland. There was a few oh. guys smoking hash in the 60s, dropping a, a little bit of acid. That, that was about it. Uh, and then heroin came in in the, in the, in the yeah. 70s. In fact, the Narcotics Anonymous, I think, began in uh, 1977 in Ireland. So again, about right. 20 years after it did, it did in the yeah, US. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, obviously the thing is, it, it hasn't, you know, every, every time something was made illegal, it just seemed to uh, to mushroom. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. It's like prohibition in America in the 20s led to organized crime, you know, making a, a yeah. ton of money off it. This is what happens, isn't it? The government stops making money and the criminals... As soon as you stop, money. yeah, as soon as you stop, I mean, if you go back, I mean, the human beings have been trying to change their states of consciousness for as long as you can imagine. It goes back thousands of years when they found, you know, pictures of opium poppies carved on the side of tablets and stuff, you know, uh, mushrooms, all kinds of stuff, hashish, opium. So there's a long history of the attempt to alter our state, you know. Uh, in fact, even animals do it. Um, that, so I discovered uh, a, a book that used to write a guy called Ron Siegel who wrote about elephants who go for miles looking for this particular fruit that's fermented <laughs> and they eat this fruit and you can imagine being around a stone elephant probably yeah. <laughs> not such a huge you know, not very recommended so even animals do it you know you give a cat catnip and it goes yeah. um, so um, and so it, our propensity for doing that has always been, and alcohol is obviously the, you know, the, was the main one. And, and in, in America, the temperance movements uh, and all the people who were essentially appalled at what was going on in the cities. So you, so you have mass immigration into America uh, in the 18th, uh, late 19th century. Um, so the towns, the cities were overrun. The poverty was just horrible living conditions grim you know um and so in those sorts of circumstances of course people are going to find a way to self-medicate all of this and it was alcohol and it was drugs and so you get this sort of what you call a moral backlash in one way shape or form and like you say you know along came prohibition which was kind of a bit like drugs already sort of doomed from the start really even more so um because, you know, it, it, it organised crime or crime generally realised that as soon as you take something out of the community that people actually want, it leaves a vacuum through which you can, you can fill. Um, and that's, that, that's what happened in, in America. Uh, people were making bathtub gin and, and dying of alcohol poisoning and, and God only knows what. So, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, it's something that, that it's it's a strange one, really. And I never really quite worked out what it is about the UK that that is kind of like this. Because, you know, nowadays we jump forward. There's, you know, there's various countries beginning to loosen up on their marijuana laws in particular, nothing else. But, yeah, marijuana laws in America and stuff like that. And we, and we are... So not not just this government, but no government just seems to want to go there. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's because we've got a far longer tradition of this in, in this country, way more than any other country in Europe. Um, we know how to drink. That's for, that's for damn sure. Yeah. <laughs> we certainly yeah. know how to drink. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, and in a sense, you could say the more against drugs was sort of doomed almost before there was a war, you know, because people would, they, they tried to shut the door after the horse had bolted. It was never going to work. To the, it, it, it took, to the it took a while though, right, for the, you know, for, I suppose, the drug laws to really clamp down on, say, what we now today call the Class A drugs. I mean, mm. one person who, you know, you probably bought Ginger Baker, you know, would have been, uh, a legal heroin addict. He went to a doctor and got yeah. his oh, heroin yeah. on prescription. And that wasn't illegal. No, I mean, in fact, the UK, in fact, England, the UK was unique in the whole world 
allowing the, there was this famous report 1926 called the Rolleston report that basically said if you've tried everything come back in the days there wasn't really everything that you there wasn't really many options for this it was legitimate medical practice to prescribe a drug of addiction to the person who was addicted to it um, and that was legitimate practice supposed to be uh, a practice of last resort um, but you know there was there was virtually no other treatment available um, at, at that time the thing was uh, and that's that allowed through the 20s 30s 40s 50s and 60s allowed um, what originally were middle-class, middle-aged women, primarily. So they'd be at home with a morphine addiction while hubby was out down the club drinking the whiskey and the rum and the rest of it. But essentially, it was a very small group of quiet, private people. There were members of the aristocracy in there, doctors, military people, uh, like I say, a lot of, you know, quite a number of women, but you could probably have got the whole of the whole using population, you know, into a small village hall. You know, there really weren't that many spread all over the country, not causing anyone any problems, quietly going to their GP, getting their prescription. Um, a lot of GPs back then actually dispensed their own drugs. So you didn't even have to go to a chemist or anything. You know, you got any, and then off you trot. Um, and then the 50s came along and you had some doctors, some of the jazz musicians hooked onto this quite early. In fact, some of them came from America on the way to playing in France, stopped off in London, stocked up on their supplies because, of course, it was they could throw the key away in America. You could be banged up in Leavenworth forever, you know, um, but it was it was legitimate. The problem in this country, as far as the authorities were concerned, is once you get into the early 60s, you start getting the 60s and you start getting swinging London. You get a lot of kids coming down from uh, from outside of London, you know, the, the other big cities. And you started getting, instead of nice, quiet, middle-aged, middle-class, genteel people quietly using their drugs, you start getting kids on the streets, you know. Not many. I mean, they're probably no more than, I don't know, a thousand people registered with the Home Office by the end of the 60s. But it was enough to cause, you know, we got to do something about this. Um, so by the time you get to 68, GPs were no longer allowed to just prescribe to anyone. You had one or two doctors who, who I think went a bit over the top and didn't do the thing. There was one in particular, Lady Franco. It certainly wasn't doing it for the money because she was already quite wealthy, but she thought her way was the right way. I think in 1962, she prescribed about six kilos of heroin, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of got the attention of the authorities somewhat. But there were, there were one or two of the others um, who were definitely in it for the money. You know, they often had, I mean, um, there was one, a guy called John Petro, who used to come into my dad's betting shop in the Bayswater Road. Um, and uh, he, he had a gambling problem, essentially. So uh, so his, his, his private prescribing was, uh, I think he kind of went native in the end and, and kind of used to go down to Piccadilly Circus and help people who had, you know, drug injecting injuries and stuff like that. He was kind of don't make them like that anymore. Oh, yeah, there was, there was a very strange set of people it's a very strange time um which is actually quite hard to describe but you had you had um you had i mean most of the drug problems in the uk at, at the time was really amphetamine that that was really the, the big problem people were smoking dope and and, and 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 taking acid and stuff like that which was your 60s counterculture small group of people who were injecting heroin amphetamines was a much a much bigger problem actually um, and, um, so, but, and again, you had these doctors who were essentially either sort of, they were actually filling a gap. There was still no proper treatment system in the UK. Yeah. 
Yeah. In fact, it, it, it was very hard to get, any, nobody knew anything about it, you see. The only consultant psychiatrists that are around were used to dealing with people who had a drink problem. They yeah. didn't really know much about the fact that people who were using knew far more about what was going on than the what, people who What, what happened to poor old devils, though, that uh, suddenly had their uh, supply switched off? Must have been very uh, difficult. I mean, they well, had to go to the street and wasn't yeah. much of it off the street at the time. Yeah, well, initially, when they, they opened up the clinics in London in 1968, and initially, this is why I've, I've always kind of had this thought in my head that nothing was ever done for people with drug problems specifically to help them. There was going to be an ulterior motive behind it. So very early on, the clinics were actually prescribing in the same way that these GPs had been prescribing, uh, except it was all now legitimate and, and they had licenses and all of this. But the clinic staff were uncomfortable about doing this, as you might imagine, because, you know, if you're a health professional, you're supposed to cure people. That, that is kind of the mindset. And I didn't really understand or appreciate or, or, or value the idea that, okay, you could give somebody this ostensibly dangerous addictive drug, but it might actually keep them on the straight and narrow, stop them looking out for dealers and, and all the rest of it. But eventually that system just crumbled um, and the doctors who were in charge of the drug policy eventually uh, just said, well, no, we're not, we're not doing this. Um, and in a sense, it was one of the, it was kind of wishful thinking because what they were trying to do was to stop the growth of an illicit market. So I thought, well, if we prescribe to this handful of users, then then the, what was going on in America, of course, wouldn't happen here. That was kind of the thing. Trouble was, there were far more people out there who were using than were actually getting counted <laughs> by, yeah. the, by the home office. Uh, and so people would, you know, get their prescription and then flog half of it off to people. Yeah. So it it it, it was never going to work. And so you, so you started getting um, sort of Chinese heroin coming into the UK, um, and then the big game changer, the big game changer, sort of happened when I got into this business because. In the UK, in England, up until, literally up until 1979, most of the heroin that was out there, you could only inject it, okay? So, and there's obviously this big taboo about sticking needles in your arm, you know, and it put a lot of people off. So, most of the people who were using heroin at that time were the, the people who may have started in the 50s or the 60s, they were kind of an older group of users and then what happened um there was a revolution in iran uh, and the shah of iran was uh, kicked out and replaced by ayatollah homily now in the middle east in that region there was a different sort of heroin and it was a heroin that you could smoke because if you tried to smoke the other stuff you just finish up with a black sticky mess, right? It, it, you couldn't do it. But with this stuff, you could put it on tinfoil, set fire to the tinfoil underneath, chasing the dragon, it was called, and you could inhale the fumes and voila, you had a heroin experience. And that's what happened in the UK. A lot of the people, the wealthier people, especially students leaving Iran, took their wealth out with them in an easily transportable way. And the easiest way of transporting it was to sort of pack cars and suitcases and what have you with brown heroin. It was brown, they called it brown heroin. Um, but for the UK, the problem with that was that quite literally, a lot of your money was going up in smoke. Yeah. And it also coincided with massive economic depression you had, you know, this is Thatcherism, right? This is the, the, the closing down of major swathes of British industry, shipping, coal mining, all the rest of it. Lots of poverty and deprivation. 
and people woke up to the fact at the same time people woke up to the fact that if they were gonna if their heroin use was going to be cost effective best way of doing that was to inject it so you started with the whole heroin epidemic the train spotting thing yeah, you know right. the Irving Welsh for all of that um started the heroin epidemic in the UK during the 80s and then apart then what you had was HIV and that was yet another game changer um and from there it led to what was in fact a pretty enlightened approach from the UK government and I say enlightened I think I call it enlightened self-interest actually because the government or Margaret Thatcher in particular was convinced or was made to be convinced that you had to try and do something to stop them giving us HIV and I explain all this in the book but basically from that mindset came the idea of harm reduction okay which was already happening in the states as well because uh, not so much because of drug injecting, but because of what was going on in the gay community. The gay community responded. They could see their friends were dying around them. So they started dishing out condoms and telling everyone to use them. Um, didn't really get the support of the authorities. In fact, you know, in America, it was called the gay plague. And it was like, well, this is God's punishment for, for being gay and all the rest of it. Um, in Holland, the drug using community had already started distributing clean needles and syringes when it was worked out it was worked out that in fact it was a doctor in Glasgow in Edinburgh Dr Roy Robertson that worked out that the reason a lot of his patients had HIV was because they'd been injecting with needles that they were sharing right uh, and so it, then it was realized that hang on a minute not only is this spreading in the gay community, but it's also spreading in the drug injecting community. So what are we going to do about that? So then you began to get in this country needle exchange programs where people could go to, to drug clinics and, and exchange and get clean works. Um, you then started uh, a complete turnaround on the drug treatment front, where it was also realised that in order to get people to stop injecting, you really had to try and get them into treatment. And the best way of getting into treatment and getting people to stay there for any length of time was to offer them something. And in this case, in terms of heroin use, it was methadone. Yeah. Right. So, um, so that, that kind of was that shift uh, away from um, trying to get people. And, and, and it's an important point because harm reduction was really what I call a human rights and social justice issue. It wasn't just about public health because the whole harm reduction movement started with the communities that were affected. It started at the bottom with a lot of opposition coming down from the medical establishment, the politicians, you can't give out needles, you're just gonna condone, you're telling people it's all right to use drugs and all this. Our take on that and the organisations I worked for were very pro-harm reduction, simply on the basis that you can't recover if you're dead. And the, the whole object is to try and keep people alive. You know, they may choose to carry on using drugs. If they're going to do that, at least try and help them do it safely. They may get to a point where they think this is really not worth it anymore. It's really about time I sorted myself out because that's what happens to a lot of people. They hit a a rock bottom point and think you know up with this i cannot put i need to do something about this but like i say if you've left them to die on the streets they don't get that option um so that's 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 a kind of and of course the numbers have been going up and up and up and up and up over all this period um and government strategies have so I think the HIV harm reduction thing was, it, you could argue, and I argue to say it doesn't matter what the motivation was behind all of this, the fact that it happened meant that, that the UK had the lowest rates of um, 
HIV as a, as a result of drug using uh, in the whole of Europe. So the strategy absolutely worked, you know. Um, the initial strategy, Bill, might, may, may not, I mean, if you, if you rewind the tape back to the, the um, you know, the, the middle class housewives and some of the elite back in the 50s, with yeah, 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 yeah. their doctor, you know, functional, functioning addicts. Yeah. You know, no oh, harm absolutely. to anybody. You take, oh. and, and arguably, as you say, um, the speed, I suppose you could, uh, you could equate that to the crack epidemic. Mm. The stimulants and uppers cause a lot more social difficulties than the downers. You could have a functioning heroin addict. Once they have their supply, they ain't oh. sick. And whereas you could have somebody off their mind, their mind rather tits on speed and might, you know, do something a little bit a little yeah. bit crazy. But it was it was all that thing. You've ended up with and start, you know, with, with prohibition essentially, you've ended up with more people using um, for a period in a more harmful way simply by making something illegal, which probably really didn't need to be at the time. It might have stayed. Do you think it would have, do you think it would have grown, the numbers would have grown regardless or? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's always difficult, in fact, impossible to determine how many people haven't done something (laughs) than the fact that people have done something. Now you could argue, you know, the war on drugs has failed. Well, yes, it hasn't stopped people who want to, using drugs uh, how many people it stopped because they were afraid of the consequences or they were afraid of getting busted or whatever who knows who knows um but of course huh, a lot of the focus is on the illegal drugs because the illegal drugs and i'm thinking primarily of things like heroin and crack often used amongst the people who are the lowest rank in society are also the ones most likely to be committing the crimes to get the money in the first place. Whereas the millions of people who are stuck on sedatives and hypnotics and tranquilizers and all the rest of it are part of what you might otherwise call normal society. And I've done quite a lot of work um uh over the years um kind of raising concerns about all these other people this hidden in plain sight what i would call for whom there is virtually no help there's virtually no help for people who have got stuck on because they suffer from depression or anxiety or whatever there is virtually no help for these people and i kind of feel that much of the effort in fact this this happened during the tony blair years this happened during the labor party years when the mantra was to break the link between drugs and crime that was the it and how you do that is you pour millions of pounds into drug treatment which is what they did you know thumbs up well done uh the drug treatment services uh, benefited hugely from that mindset from that 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 political ambition um but that's to me another example um of political expediency really yeah you had to people were getting worried because you know i mean most of the crime committed by people on the who are homeless on the streets with drug problems you know this idea that they will go around murdering your granny and stuff like that is just just rubbish right it's acquisitive crime it's shoplifting by and large so that you go and sell your goods down the pub and get some money and go and buy some drugs um that's kind of the, the way it works but it, it from a political point of view you have to be seen to be doing something about it and what they came up with then was you know pile money into the drug into the drug treatment system get people out i mean it's very laudable and a lot of people went through the treatment system as a result of that and the whole thing collapsed afterwards when the tories came in but that's a whole different can of worms um but these were people who were causing problems in society you know people by and large um with all the other problems that cause you to use drugs nice legal drugs that you can get from your gp or your pharmacist nobody seems to care about 
nobody's doing anything about it. Um, these people don't go forward to drug treatment services. They, you know, with the best will in the world, they do not want to be sitting in a waiting room with somebody who's kind of slumped in a corner off their face on heroin. Now, you know, you can make a judgment about that, but but they just don't want to do it, you know. Um, yeah. You've only got to see what happened in America, you know, with, with the opioid situation in America. Yeah. Yeah, very similar. Um that, that was down to salesmanship on 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 but you know the part of the, the farm industry yeah, that was like really, that was insidious shit yeah, it was dreadful yeah. um and in in america up to, up to that point it was very hard to get painkillers from from doctors because they were they were terrified about people getting addicted but there was one letter one letter appeared in the new york journal of medicine or new england journal of medicine right and this doctor said, look, we had a group of patients who were in hospital with cancer problems, and we gave them morphine, okay? And they got better, and we let them out, and they didn't become drooling people staggering around the streets of midnight looking for a hit. It was all entirely related to the circumstances they were in. They came out, yes, they had the shivers and the shakes for a bit, but they didn't become heroin addicts as a result and that just was like woof that opened a huge can of worms with the with with companies who came up with a new drug it's called oxycontin and and the sales pitch for oxycontin was that it releases the pain element painkilling element slowly doesn't give you a big hit all at once it's slowly therefore it's less addictive wrong <laughs> absolutely and utterly wrong and you've had tens of thousands of deaths as a result of that a lot of the doctors who were doing this were actually doctors who already been struck off and they oh, set yeah. up pill mills basically yeah. you had 300 dollars, and when when you couldn't afford it you bought heroin yeah oh so, um th there is this disconnect really between how we treat people as drug problems depending on what the drugs are <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's, very because it's, it's very true what you say about the mother's that will help her the yeah. tranquilizer thing <laughs> that, that's like if you're talking about pure, you know, pure heroin pure valium pure valium is more toxic you know essentially it has a worse effect on the human body and, and it takes a lot longer to withdraw successfully from i mean there's risk of tremor and, and things like that and you, you could die actually you, know, you can on, yeah on, Okay. Value, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that these have changed. I mean, so, you know, from when you started out in your career up, up to now, you've, you've seen a few things. You said that. You've also seen that the rave scene. What yeah. happened after? And in fact, the rave scene actually led to quite a lot of heroin use because people were needing to come down off their, their, uh, their ecstasy highs. Yeah. Um, and then to see now where, you know, there's no real, I mean, to me, in my mind, the, there's no real youth culture anymore the no punk scene or you know rave scene or, or hippie scene so you know i don't know, I don't know what scenes maybe removed from it and um, what what's what's changed now up to now what's how how are the problems in society being dealt with well i mean in the uk drugs apart from you know the police tackling what they call county lines so so there has been a change in i mean the drugs are the same there's heroin there's crack there's cocaine there's ecstasy there's ketamine there's hash there's homegrown cannabis there's i mean the actual your actual menu your cafeteria of drugs hasn't really changed much in in the last i don't know 15 20 years what has changed um supply routes have changed so there was a time when um, drug dealers from the big cities would go to small towns seaside resorts and so on sell stuff to local dealers and go home right that was it job done but for some years now that that um strat that that uh, business model has changed partly because as i understand it the, it was getting a bit violent in the inner cities 
there was there was a lot of violence, a lot of gang turf wars and all the rest of it. So what some of these dealers started to do was to literally go to these other smaller towns and resorts and whatever and actually take over the local drug scene and, and push the local dealers out. Um, and then, of course, yeah, you had things like, you know, social media, you know, people could talk to each other on WhatsApp and you had mobile phones and all of that technology has changed the sort of supply chains and the way people do business um, and the police have had to respond accordingly, you know, mapping telephone masks and triangulating where people are phoning, all of that stuff. So I think that the, the technology of drug dealing has changed quite dramatically. Yeah, it was like Craigslist or something. I know over in Ireland, you, it, it's gone now, but it was Craigslist mm. uh, advertising space where just you know, anonymous punters would stick an ad up, got this, call yeah. me, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I think it's also, it's also, it's still going on with, um, you know, people making dealing arrangements. I mean, the idea that you sort of, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the idea that you had to hang around a street corner in order to get your spot, you know, you can have speed dialing, coke dealer will come around to your place, you know, and all, and all of that stuff. So, so the technology has changed the way things are done on, on, on the streets. So that, that's different. I think you're right. I, I think there's not, um, yeah, you could talk. Yeah, you could talk about you know the hippies and 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 the mods and the punks and the yeah. But I don't think it's got very granular now. I think you yeah you know, you've got probably and I'm you know way past being dramatically interested in what's going on. But but you know there's all sorts of fragmented versions of, of hip hop and rap and and, and you know dance music and all sorts of stuff but I don't and festivals you know festivals got very big I mean there was a time when you just had a few festivals in the summer um and pre-covid of course it all shut down for a while but there were festivals all over the place and obviously they're gradually coming back and that's still the um the the uh, hub for people to use particularly ecstasy and stuff like that <laughs> One interesting development is that, that we now have a, a, a drug checking system happening uh, in some festival sites, which apparently, uh, not apparently, it's true that the Home Office has kind of sanctioned this. And the organisation called The Loop in the UK, it operates in England mainly, I think, is now a recognised registered charity. Okay. Um, what they actually do is you can take your sample that you've bought, give them a bit of it, they'll test it, tell you what, what you know, say, oh, I bought this ecstasy. Well, okay. We can tell you that it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't. Or it's particularly strong. You know, right. what you do after that is up to you. You don't get your bits back. It's all yeah. Bitter. But it gives people, and it certainly isn't foolproof, you know, and all the rest of it, but it does give people an indication of what it is that they've just bought, um, which is, you know... It, that saves lives, for sure. Of course, it's bound to. In fact, there was a quite a tragic story recently, a, a young girl who died at a festival, uh, and the mother is quite convinced that, you know, she'd been able to sort of suss out a bit of what it was that she'd been given and apparently i understand quite a lot of people if they are told that you've got a particularly strong because there is a lot of strong ecstasy out there and, and 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 stimulants that are kind of kind of mashed up together to, to, to look like ecstasy and sell like ecstasy people quite often will say oh, i don't fancy that and will bin it you know right um so um but the one thing that this so the government, you know, tick gold star. Well, well done for that. But, but on the business of saving lives, what they will not sanction, um, media call them shooting galleries. 
Mm. Um, people who work in the treatment sector call them safer injecting rooms. I prefer to call them overdose prevention units. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, you know, people can uh, safely, you know, under medical supervision, can, can you know, inject the drugs they bought. Uh, it, it has community benefit because it means yeah. you don't have sort of drug litter all over the place. If you've got someone in there, you might be able to convince them to come into treatment if they aren't already there. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's just one of these things they won't. They just they just won't countenance. Um, it, 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 it does need more because like a lot a lot of what feeds into using is the fact that you are so outside of society. Whereas bringing people into that kind of environment, they're less judged and they can feel. And like you said, the opportunities to convince someone there's a better way. You know, you yeah. Can't, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it makes and there's about sixty other sixty other sites around the world. I think various countries, Canada countries in Europe, Australia, various places that have kind of, you know, accepted this on the basis quite often of local, the local citizenry going up in arms because of the drug litter. So again, it's quite often policies that derive from a problem. Yeah. We've got a problem, people are getting pissed off about it, we need to do something about it. So a lesser problem would be to have people coming in off the streets and using their drugs in a you know, in a supervised situation. Um, but it normally happens. I think it's happened like this in Switzerland and Denmark and Denmark, yeah, yeah. Because local people have been pissed off with people hanging around the streets and injecting and dropping the stuff in the kids' playgrounds and and, and all of that. It doesn't often happen, I don't think, because some health minister thinks, wouldn't it be a good idea to help people who've got drug problems not it, die? It, because, it might, it might be know, a good idea to go back to having doctors uh, prescribe it. And, and, well, you know, yeah. In essence, anyway, methadone is just another opiate. So you know, yeah. it's you know, just give, give them the real stuff instead of messing around and making right. them go get that and then they're, they're, they're fixed error. Well, yeah, you know? some people use on top, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and then you get into this business of, you know, how much is enough, you know, because if, you, if you've got people in a treatment system and then you're not giving them enough, methadone yeah, yeah. and you're giving them tiny little doses of course they're going to go out and, and, and use on top but it's um phew it is it is a business it's it's something we just haven't really got our heads around you know except for the small people like you're like you know as in the small amount of people like yourselves who are yeah. on the front lines understand it and um, really should be listened to more and then you know might end up with a, sl a slightly better better result i would, well, uh, I would yeah agree. i i it's, it always yeah you know, like i said talk about you know the um the drug war has failed but i kind of wonder you know there are some people who are doing quite well out of this <laughs> yeah you know drug cartels for a start yeah um a lot of a lot of money coming into law enforcement generally is generated off the back of dealing with the drug problem. Yeah. You've got America for years um, would use a lot of political leverage, particularly in Latin America, off the back of helping countries deal with their drug problem, which gave them license to send their own guys in there. And, you know, yeah. and the classic example of this, which was a bit shocking when I heard, first heard about it, was that a former head of the UN drug control program said, it basically said, because of all the drug money that's washing through the international monetary systems, so the banks are doing all right out of this yeah. as well. Yeah. If, it, if it wasn't for that money flow, the financial crash of 2007-8 would have been a lot worse because there's a lot of liquid cash floating yeah. through the system and yeah. it literally kept things afloat. Nuts. And so, you know, really, really, really nuts. And we're almost that, running out of time, Harry, because I've oh, yeah, been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. But I can't right. finish 
without uh, mentioning and seeing what's the story um, you wrote a, a, a book about Gary Moore about, uh, Gary Moore yeah yeah very quickly I I mean I've I've Gary's just the latest music book I've written I've done Hendrix Eric Clapton Jack Bruce Alexis Corner and Graham Bond uh, who also came off heroin or for a bit while he was in Ireland then oh, well, floating well, well. down the <laughs> what's the name of the river is it the Liffey the Liffey yeah, right. Yeah. So he was on a boat on the Liffey with a roadie who got him off heroin for about 10 minutes, I think. <laughs> but but no, I mean, Gary was just, Gary uh, came up, I mean, I'd been a sort of, you know, general fan of Gary, the same uh, rock yeah. music. Um, uh, after I'd done the Jack Bruce book, I was kind of looking for what the next thing is going to be. And sadly, Gary died in 2011. He had a heart attack. He was only 59. I generally began thinking about this and then I kind of, you know, got hold of the, the, the guys running the website and talked to the business manager. Uh, I said, would you, had you fancy a book? And they said, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. And I was kind of off to the races after that. Uh, and I managed to, you know, talk to musicians, um, friends, family, you know, business people, roadies, whatever, the whole, the whole schmear. Um, and the book came out uh, in uh, September, late September. And uh, I have to say, I'm quite proud of that book. It's nice. Well, I'd have to read it. I haven't yet. So, uh, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to get well. stuck into that. And, uh, yep. Yeah. Because Gary, Gary had a lot of Irish affinity. I mean, he was born in Belfast. Belfast and he yeah. kind of came to public attention in, in Dublin with Skid Row and, you know, Thin yeah. and all of that lot. So, yeah. big Irish connection. <laughs> Good stuff, good stuff. Well, listen, thank you so much, um, Harry. It's You're a real welcome. pleasure. Um, there's a bit more I could have talked to as well. But really, oh, there's loads. Really, there's really loads. enjoy the conversation. It's, it's <laughs> okay. fantastic. Right. Um, so thank you for sharing time. So the two books uh, we mentioned there, Fierce Chemistry and uh, Gary Moore, and then you've got the whole host of other musical favourites to check out from uh, uh, Harry's repertoire. So listeners, please do. Um, they are all a treat. Well, listeners... You may or may not have been expecting that conversation, which gave us a real look at uh, the history of drug laws and how they have affected society. Very good from Harry, really good guy to talk to, a lot of personal experience in the game and uh, a lover of music like myself. Really glad to have the opportunity to have a chat with them and learned an awful lot from the conversation. So we hope you did too. And thank you all for tuning in to the Hipstorians. As always, please do leave us a like, uh, do subscribe, and any sort of review is tremendously helpful in keeping the show on the road. Thank you. Bye.